Hello, fellow grievers. You have found the leftover pieces, Suicide Lost Conversations, and I am Melissa, your podcast host. Join me for real conversations and candid talk on hard topics surrounding the loss of a loved one to suicide. I talk with other lost survivors, mental health experts, advocates, and sometimes I offer my own thoughts. Every week we explore the questions that haunt us, seek the courage to uncover the healing tools within us, and hopefully offer the comfort of a community that we all need so very much. It's true our hearts and lives have been shattered, but come along with me and together let's choose to find meaning and even happiness amid the leftover pieces before us. Welcome. Hello, grievers. Today, I have a very candid conversation with Jennifer. Jennifer lives with bipolar 2. In today's episode, Jennifer is going to tell us her story from the time that she was 15 all the way to diagnosis at 42, and she covers everything in between. Grievers, this is an important conversation because Jennifer is going to tell us how she went from trauma to addiction and eventually to diagnosis. I think this story is so important because Jennifer is so many people out there. So many people that on the outside might seem to have it all together to many of us, but are living in a personal hell. You're going to hear her talk about the cycle, the cycle of abuse, substance abuse, the effect of trauma, the development and dealing with of mental health issues. You're going to hear her talk about going from being a super high functioning human being to feeling like she didn't even recognize her life anymore and what led to the eventual crash. You're going to hear her talk about what might have made a difference in her life and that led her down a different path. And then you'll finally hear her wrap up by talking about how the relief of a diagnosis went from feeling like a prison to now feeling like a promise and how she once felt like she would rather die and has now found hope. Only through having conversations like this will we be able to break the cycles that involve the shame and silence of trauma and abuse and the cycles Today, that follow and how to support people back to mental wellness. Is Jennifer Spencer. I am honored to welcome Jennifer today. I am really, really excited to have Jennifer on and to have this conversation with her today. She's one of my dearest friends. She's actually one of my biggest support persons in my life. I've asked Jennifer to come on today and talk because Jennifer lives with bipolar 2. She also has a diagnosis of general anxiety disorder, along with some other things that I'll let her tell us about. Part of her story does include suicidal ideation and thoughts, and I'm going to have her address that as we go along. I think her story is really important to hear. I think many people listening probably can relate. And I think you're going to take a lot from this conversation today. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome. Hi. Excited to be here with you. Yep. I'm glad you're here, too. I want to start. um, I know we've talked a little bit about before we were on. So I just want to start with you telling me, telling everybody that's listening a little bit about your background, about your story with um, your mental health and mental health diagnosis and maybe kind of where it's where it began for you and, and uh, go from there. Okay. I, um, as I was thinking about this um, interview, I, I thought it would be best initially to break it up into three pieces. And so I I will start out um, talking about the person that I was, um, prior to feeling like something was different. Um, And then I'll go into um, the next step, the next level of um, my life with experiences that I couldn't quite explain. And then into the um, life of where I'm coping and getting help. Um, So I, I was, this young uh, little girl moved to 
a small western or south central town in uh, in Kansas, and just had no worries in the world. I lived out in the country. I would run around independently. I would just do all kinds of things that any um, child typically does. And um, then when we, that was probably about when I was eight to 10 years old. And then we moved into town and I started really making connections with more people. And I had a ton of friends. I was involved in every activity you could possibly think of. Um, I, I was a very athletic child and um, that carried on throughout my middle school and high school years. And I was a very intelligent child. I um, participated in um, math. Um, I don't really know what to call it. Like math um, contest. So they would pick athletics. Yes, I was tested for the gifted program. You know, life for me was, it was great. It was absolutely, I had fun. I, I didn't have a worry in the world. And I was a little kid who had a bright, bright future. And so then going into middle school, um, did very well in school, did very well in athletics, very popular kid, uh, you know, had a boyfriend. Um, and then we started kind of, re you know, reaching out to different areas like drink, you know, trying drinking and kissing your boyfriend and, you know, those typical age um, type of things. And I met a, a, a guy that was much older than me and I was just enamored with him. And so me and some of my friends would hang out with his friends. Um, and we were then exposed to like full on uh, marijuana, drinking, sex. And I was in eighth grade. And so um, when my parents found out, of course, they, you know, banned me from ever seeing him. But I found every way possible. And so as this part of my life was occurring, um, like the 13, 14 year old, um, I, you know, chasing after this high school guy, quarterback, everybody loved him, very attractive guy. I would do just about anything to keep his attention. Um, but during that period of time, I had an incident involving a family member who um, had been grooming me, um, who had over a, a good year and a half really spent some time preparing for the night that he attempted to sexually abuse me. And I was 15, year old, 15 years old at the time. Um, and luckily, I had a strong enough head on my shoulders and enough emotional intelligence to run away. And so at that time of him attempting to try to have sex with me, I went and locked myself in my room. And I waited and waited and waited until the very next morning until my mom came home because she was not there during that time. Um, I then came out to my mom. I spoke with my mom and I let her know what happened because my mom and I had a very good relationship and my mom looked at me and said, that never happened. I don't believe you. So right there at that point in my life, I am 15 years old. I'm already starting to do some of those bad things, you know, that um, could really be a bad decision and, and make significant changes in your life. And I turned I became a rebellious child. I became involved with people that I, outside of my close group of friends, 
I looked for every possible way not to be at home. And that would, those kinds of experience involved like daytime drinking, um, drinking after school and um, just not participating in life really. I would write notes saying um, I want to get out of school and sign it as my dad's note. Um, I did that all the time. So I started skipping school, drinking during that time. And at, at that period of time, very athletic, very interested in sports, doing very well in sports, um, recognized within the state for sports. And I just completely dropped out. I got in trouble. Um, someone told on me for drinking at a party and I just, I just completely dropped off. I wasn't um, studying. I wasn't doing well and nobody was paying attention. And at that point in time, I started drinking heavily and there was this, this thing in my head that constantly was talking to me about something's going on. This isn't okay. Why do you feel so sad? Why are you giving up these things that you love to be a part of? Um, and I just couldn't explain it. I felt different than other people. I felt like I didn't fit in, even though I was like one of those popular girls. But I didn't see it anymore because I had this internal struggle that was telling me you're different. And I couldn't figure out what it was. Um, I began sleeping all the time. And um, I would sneak out at night to go drink. Um, just engaging in activities to check out of my life. Um, and that was the like, 15, 16, 17-year-old high school time. Um, and again, I was still involved with this um, guy that I absolutely thought was the best thing in the world when he was actually the worst thing in the world for me. But since I had been abandoned basically by my family, I felt like he was my only support. And then I couldn't wait off to college. I, I graduated high school and off to college. I went and um, I was getting away from my family, getting away from my town, going to a little bit bigger city. I was, you know, so excited. And, um, but down deep inside, I was scared to death because I still have those feelings of you're not worth it, um, sadness, hopelessness, um, not wanting to be around people. And so I had to pretend. And so I put a different, I put a costume on basically and had to pretend to be another person. Um, it became harder and harder for me to pretend during those, during that first year of college, because I, um, I would sleep I would drink, I would miss classes, um, and, and basically that first year of college, I ended up being dismissed from K-State because of my grade point average, and I couldn't come back um, for at least a year. At that point in time, I decided I needed help because something was really wrong. Um, this isn't going away. And I was deep, heavy into drinking, drinking every day. Um, and I did go to see a counselor a handful of times. Then I stopped going, and then life just kept on as usual. Um, that happened for years. Um, got, you know married, had children, um, had, a, had my first professional job. I was um, realizing that I was in an extremely chaotic and unhealthy marriage, both physically and emotionally abusive to me. Um, and I was stuck, I guess it's not the right word, but felt stuck raising my family on my own, even though he was physically there. 
And again, I felt all alone. Nobody had me, um, nobody was paying attention. They thought everything was fine. Again, still heavily drinking. Um, and I, on and off with um, therapy. But at that point in time, I have been put on an antidepressant that um, they had diagnosed me with just generalized depression. And went on and off different types of medication because I was resistant to um, the depression medication. And, you know, it would work for a few months and then I would continue taking it the rest of the year and it would, it would not be doing me any good. So at that point in time, I don't know how many, I've probably been on five different, um, antidepressants and I was my in my early 30s um, life started to change significantly for me uh, I became more stressed I became more overwhelmed um, I had uh, been in a position where I was flying to different um, states mm -hmm. to do my work. And so I was able to escape it, but I was faking it. I was faking my, my days at work. I was faking my days at home. Um, I, I had no idea who I was anymore. I just knew I felt this overwhelming sadness and all I wanted to do was sleep. At one point in time, I began taking painkillers, um, thinking that it was a different kind of, um, I, I don't want to say high, but it was a different kind of feeling that eased the pain inside my head. So then I started taking those um, for a good two months, and I realized I'm going to get in trouble with this if I don't stop. And I had two young kids. Um, I wasn't necessarily drinking as much. Um, so I was strong enough to stop that, but I realized I need to get divorced. Um, I had had multiple affairs at that point. My life was extremely chaotic, extremely chaotic. I was faking everything. Um, and then got divorced. Um, you know, started into the, the dating life, still struggling with this. I don't know who I am. I'm a very sad person. Nobody is going to want to date me. And so drinking, 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 drinking. And this is my mid-30s. And drinking while on antidepressants, still just diagnosed with generalized depression. I had seen many different doctors because I had health insurance, then I didn't have health insurance. Um, so it, it, again, it was very chaotic. I don't know how I kept a job, but it was always like I'm one day away from getting fired. And then through my dating, it had gotten to, you know, so much going to the bars and being downtown and hanging out where um, alcohol was just, that's what we did. We drank and drank and drank, and then we would, you know, go home, and the next day we would go out again. And on one of those occasions, I had taken an Uber to the bar to meet one of my guys that I was dating. Or actually, I drove my car to the bar, parked it. We had several drinks and then we decided to go down to town. So we took an Uber and just went bar hopping all night, Uber, 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 um, everywhere. And then came back. I got in my car, I drove home and I got pulled over for DUI. And that was in, uh, 2015. And, um, Wait, I, I remember after I was driving home the next morning because I was in jail, I pulled over on the side of the road and threw up. And I sat 
and I sat there as I'm driving home thinking, what, what am I going to do? I just made one of the biggest mistakes of my life, and I don't know how I'm going to get out of it. I don't have the money to pay for it. I can't hire an attorney. Um, I honestly don't have any clue of what to do. At the same time, I had been um, recommended a psychiatrist who um, I went to see. Fortunately, I had um, insurance. And within 15 minutes of talking to him in our first consultation, he said, you have bipolar too. And the shock of hearing that I had bipolar too, because every when you hear bipolar, everyone you know thinks you're just this crazy maniac. Um, you know, I thought I can't, I can't have this. This I can't have it. But then again, I was like, finally, I know. Finally, someone knows what's wrong with me. And you know, he gave me a list of prescriptions, and I was thinking. Thank God, thank God, I finally can get well. And then I remember walking to my car um, and just crying and calling my mom and telling her I have bipolar. Um, and then it was more of a, a state of shock and not knowing how to deal with it as opposed to hope. Um, and, and at the same time, I diagnosed with bipolar. I'm also dealing with a um, DUI. Um, so during that period of time, I laid in my bed and did not get out of my bed. It was a good seven days. And I slept and slept and slept. And at that point in time, I kept thinking the only way out of this is suicide. And it was the first time I really had a, a thought of actually going through with it. I mean, I, there had been different times in my life where I thought about it um, because I just wanted the pain to go away. Um, and I just thought this is never going to, I'm never going to be the person I thought I was going to end up being. Um, but I knew at that point in time after I had the DUI and I was just laying in bed, not working, not interacting with um, anybody that let's make this plan and let's see what this is going to do. Um, but fortunately, uh, I, in the back of my mind, I kept thinking about my children. So in the end of those seven days, I decided there's no way I could do that to my children. So um, they were my saving grace at that point in time. But I still had a huge amount of hopelessness. I didn't know how I was going to get out of this. And I definitely felt like my life was over. I could not see an end to the heartache and the pain and the suffering. And I just didn't know what to do. So at that point in time, I made a decision to stop drinking. And I started receiving um, mental health um, counseling, and I was able to continue one more time in seeing my psychiatrist. And we just had gotten to a point where things were somewhat stable. My medication was beginning to work. I was feeling a little bit different. Of course, I still struggled. Um, and I got to a point in life where I decided I'm going to deal with all of my problems that I created head on and I don't need the alcohol. I just, I need to get help. I need to get help with my mental health because that's the driving force. So long, long story to um, the diagnosis. I was in my forties when I, when I got the diagnosis and I just look back and think of all of the, heartache and pain I went through if I only could have found out earlier in my life that's what my actual diagnosis was I think life would be different but several um, times 
throughout that that time period until I was diagnosed with bipolar suicide was it had crossed my mind and like I said again the, the actual time I remember I was scared to death that I really wanted to do it that I thought I would do it was those last seven days after my DUI and now that I've been receiving help and looking to continue receiving help that is not an option for me so, um, and as I experienced Alex's death, I saw what happens to families when someone leaves the world that way. Um, and I could not imagine ever doing that to my kids. So that was, that was a strong um, opening, or a, a strong um, event in my life, I guess, um, really when Alex died that was my final there's absolutely no way um, this is going to ever be a thought in my mind and at that point in time my son was dealing with mental health issues he was at risk um, he was um, his doctors said he's high risk for suicide and I would it was just an overwhelming period of time of sadness in, in our family. And um, I would walk up to his bedroom when he was sleeping just to make sure he was still alive. So, you know, suicide has impacted my life, not only in my own thoughts, but in people around me. And it really has um, brought this awareness that, um, you know, other people should know about, which is, I'm so happy that you were able to honestly talk about this with individuals. Um, and I hope that the work you do will continue to help people come to, to see the reality that um, suicide can happen with anyone. And it is a very, um, It's, it's like a bogus thing that people don't like to talk about. And I think it's something that, um, like, like I said, awareness is so important. So, Well, I'm going to let you take a, a, a brief breath there. Maybe take a drink of water because that's a lot to, it's a lot to unpack, Jennifer. That's a lot to, um, and it, oh, it, it's a lot of, it's a lot of, you know, when you, to hear you talk about, trauma as such a, you know, trauma that occurred at 15 years old was truly, you know, a catalyst. Now I'm not, you know, not saying that that's the cause of everything that's occurred, but looking back, do you think that you could have, um, reached out to somebody would it have made a difference if your parents had reacted differently would it have made a difference that along the way did anybody reach out and say you know what can I do to help what I, I'm I'm just trying to think of you know and then I want to talk a little bit about you know the the last three or four years because that's been you know so important in getting to the place that you are now. Um, but do you think that you could have, that somebody could have reached? I think things would have played out differently if um, my mom would have responded to me differently. Because once I lost that trust and support, I turned to people who didn't have my best interests in mind. Um, and really made some bad decisions and got involved with people and things that have changed the course of my life. Well, and that trauma, trauma affects our brain and our whole body. Um, but for it to happen when you're in your adolescence, um, really any time in childhood is, is so significant on the trajectory that it may send you on at that point. And, um, well, there, there was um, two other incidents where um, older men, coaches, um, both coaches, uh, had approached me 
for that very reason. And so I began to, I was confused. Mm-hmm. Like, why is this happening to me? Why, why am I the only one that is having this problem? And I wasn't telling anybody about it. Nobody knew about this. And so it just sat deep inside. I dropped out of those sports. On my junior year, I was doing great. I had the opportunity to play sports in college. Right, no scholarships, right. And nobody was paying attention. The red flags were all over the place. But I was out there trying to survive on my own. And, of course, yeah, I probably should have reached out to other people, but I didn't know how. I was embarrassed. I didn't quite know how to put words to what was happening. I was just feeling different and something's very wrong. I think that that's um, why it's so important that with the culture that we have today, um, I mean, I know for a fact that you fall on the side, obviously, of being an advocate of people speaking out and believing victims and believing people that say something's happened to them. And, you know, it goes along with erasing stigmas in general, but we have to be willing to provide a culture that allows for people to speak out and know that they can, that there will be somebody that will listen and there will be somebody that will will help them because, you know, in the time that we grew up, you're about five years younger than I am, but in, but that's the same age group, you know, we're talking about that just wasn't done. And like you experienced, you did tell your mother and it wasn't believed. And that was unfortunately pretty common for the era in which we grew up. And among many things that need to change in our society, that's one of them. Yes, absolutely. It definitely, it could have changed my life. Right. And, and that's, that's huge. Um, I know that the last, you know, so to hear you here, to hear you talk and because I know the whole story, you know, obviously it's, I, I don't want to fill in anything preemptively, but I want you to share a little bit about, because where you've left off, you've kind of said that, you know, you receive a diagnosis that on one hand is extremely, um, you know, relieving to say, I finally know, I finally, somebody's finally given me an, an answer as to quote unquote, what's wrong, or and maybe a, a path to start to fix it. But it isn't like overnight, everything was just fine. It, the last three or four years have been and I want you to just put it in your words, but from where I see it, it's been a, a journey of you. Um, you know, obviously, on one hand, you, you are still dealing with all the ramifications of the DUI, um, and that's a constant reminder. But then you've continued to be an advocate for yourself and for your own mental health, and you've continued to tirelessly pursue um, therapies, pursue answers, pursue accurate additional diagnoses uh, to be sure that um, you're getting the best health when you backslide, you recognize that you do. um, And I know that's not without struggles as well. I mean, that doesn't mean, you know, that, that it's being that, that you're always doing it perfectly, but you're constantly trying to find answers so that you can live a healthier life. And, um, I want you to speak a little bit to what that what the journey to um, continuing to find answers and seek out, you know, because you haven't that what what happened, I guess is what I'm trying to get to is what happened when you got that initial diagnosis and those initial prescriptions written out. That wasn't like, a, OK, great chapter closed into book. Now I've got these and now I live the rest of my life. It's been I think it's important for people to hear that it's an ongoing journey at this point to continue to change medications when need to change, to change therapists when you need to, to, to do some of those things. What has been um, the, some of that that's happened over the last three or four years? Um, I can honestly say that when I first, when I first had the diagnosis, I thought, 
I need to find out as much information that I possibly can. And I just read and read and read and read. Um, I looked at the different therapies that were available. Um, I always was aware of the new drugs coming out. I became very involved in my, um, my, my situation in my own mental health. Um, but don't get me wrong at that point in time, I was still an emotional wreck. I was still hopeless and sad and, and just in pain, a lot of pain. I slept a lot, um, to avoid, um, feeling things. Um, so it, it wasn't necessarily, um, the answer I was looking for, but it helped put me on a path. But then I realized now I'm in prison. Now I have to live with this diagnosis for the rest of my life, and I don't want to. So I began. I began to. Um, try to figure out how to survive. I guess I should say, because I thought I, if I let this overcome me, then I am going to die because it is one of the hardest things a person can do is to every day have to wake up and decide I'm going to manage my mental health today. This is not a disease that ever goes away. And there are days you, you just think I can't do this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. And the thing with bipolar two is you're stuck in your lows more than you are your mania. So um, it's it's a severe level of depression, and it's not it's not easily managed. So you have to I have to constantly be in touch with my psychiatrist to make sure I'm on the right dosage, the right medication. Um, maybe there are new therapies. Uh, it's it's become an everyday thing in my life. I have to be aware of my moods. Um, there'll be days I'm like, what's going on? Oh, yeah, the bipolar. So um, I'm never going to escape it. But I'm doing my best to be informed, to be aware, and, and to work very closely with the medical community because in my past I hadn't um, had the opportunity to do that. And, and part of that is insurance. Again, it's health insurance has played a huge part of when and how I manage um, my bipolar. So uh, it's, it's, it's truly just to put it bluntly, it's surviving. And I want to get to the point um, where I am, happy again you know consistently um, because there's always that little thing in your head telling you you have bipolar you have bipolar and you know you're just on a different level of functioning than a lot of people are but you can live with bipolar you can be you know perfectly capable person with bipolar it's just finding that place and each individual has a different place and I'm not quite there yet. So something you said when you talked about how you've had, you know, you had your seven days where you were probably most, most likely to have completed suicide. It wasn't the only time you've ever had suicidal thoughts. Um, I hear you say, you know, that, that the loss of my son, Alex, um, you know, which our kids have been around. Um, we've, we've known each other since Alex was um, probably five because, yeah, probably five because Taylor and Parker were four, maybe six. Yeah. And um, so realizing that, um, you know, you, suicide was something that you wanted to take you say you took it off the table. Um, I, I guess I think it's important to hear that it doesn't mean you still don't 
that it doesn't ever cross your mind that you don't ever think about it. Um, but that you, the way you described it to me once and tell me if this is wrong now, but you said it isn't, you now have tools that you've put in place because like you said, you had the realization that, well, first before Alex died, you had the realization that you, you couldn't, you didn't want to do that to your children. Mm -hmm. But I think that, that, you know, from having been in that dark of a place that a lot of times that an impulsive moment and, and thankfully you weren't drinking during that time. Right. Um, because that would have clouded it even more. Um, that would have possibly made, you know, your decision-making ability worse than it was. And, um, you know, you said you've now put tools in place. So, it, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't want somebody that, that, you know, still feels like, well, then why do I still have thoughts of taking my life, even though I know it would be hard for my family or whatever. And I know that, I do think that firsthand seeing what the loss of, I mean, Alex was 21 when he died and, um, and, and I remember being, you know, you being so scared about your son and, you know, I was part of that, you know, of you talking about that daily and checking on him. And, and so that while on one hand that helps you, I mean, I guess talk about the tools that you've put in place because I think that's what's important. I think that the 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 thoughts don't go away, and I think that you know it isn't like you're never going to think those things again. But what do you? How do you differentiate where you were now versus where you would be now, especially since you can still go into such deep lows? Um, where I am now, as, as opposed to where I was with um, right after the DUI, is that I I have places to turn. Uh, my doctor, my psychiatrist is, um, you know, I can call him at any point in time. And that is something I didn't have before. Um, I have uh, a counselor that I work with. Uh, once a week and I have um, you you know when you um, can connect with other people that have had those same thoughts or attempts or actually lived through that situation um, with someone close to them or family um, it's definitely a support and I, I didn't have that before and I don't know how I made it um, through those seven days without following through, um, other than my kids, but now it's more than my kids. Now it's, I have a community of people that I can turn to. Um, and I just, I just feel like if you don't have that in your life, that, um, it can be an easy, easy, easy way to, uh, in, in someone's mind to think, I'm going to get rid of the pain and this is how I'm going to do it. And, but there's absolutely, um, you can't see past what this is going to do to your family and your friends. Um, and now I can't. So, uh, it's taken a long time. I definitely, there are days I'm just like, I hate my life. I hate this. Why do I have this? Why, you know, why me? I don't want to live like this for the rest of my life. Um, but I just have to turn back to um, telling myself it's an, on, it's an ongoing process. You're going to get um, to your new normal at some point. But it's, it's just taking a lot longer than I thought. Well, you're, I mean, does it ever help to look back and realize that you've come, how far you have come, even though you're not where you want to be yet? Yeah, it, it actually, I just look back and think, how the hell did I do that? And, you know, being, drinking as much as I did, um, I wasn't aware of what was going on around me. And that was, you know, purposely not trying to be aware of it. So 
um, it was an easy go-to. Um, and when I came out of that drinking, you know, it would be like, oh my gosh, my life is really this bad. I gotta drink again to stop thinking about it. But it, I don't know. It was it, my life. I look back on it now and I think I have so many experiences I can share with people who think this is, I'm, I would rather die than to live like this. I would have too. I definitely would have. Um, but there, I am now at a new point in life where there is hope, there is support, there is something they can do. And people are talking about it now. Um, you know, it's not so weird and strange to bring up the fact that you suffer from depression um, and that you're really having a bad day or you're really low. Or, um, But, we, you know, there's still a lot more steps to be taken in, in suicide prevention. But mental health is slowly making some gains. Well, because people, thankfully, people are starting to talk more. And I... I'm just jumping on a bandwagon because I feel like it's the right thing to do. I didn't start the train rolling. Um, there's many, many great people that have started talking about it. Um, I just think that that by not shying away from the conversation and not um, refusing to shine a spotlight on things, um, we'll just continue to stay in the darkness. And I think that the only way um, for us to reduce the stigma of mental health and to reduce the suicide rate is to continue to talk about it and to continue to move forward with um, destigmatizing and um, normalizing the fact that our mental health is every bit as important as our physical health. And as a matter of fact, they're directly tied to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a whole body situation and um, in order to be well, I think so many people hear that. Are you well, are you, are you, they, they, they mean, you know, is your blood pressure in check or, you know, things mm-hmm. like that. They just mean, what about our, our mind? I mean, so I think that we just continue talking about it and moving forward. And I'm so thankful that you were willing to share your story and talk about it today. I think it's going to resonate with so many people. I think that um, what I hear from you, even though you're not there yet, is kind of the message that I want, I like to leave people with, which is one of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not there yet, but I think you see hope for your future. You know that there is a future to be built in which you you know, are building and working on in which you feel um, maybe more at peace with your diagnosis and your new normal and can carve out things that, you know, um, will create a um, happy future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, one day at a time. And I try I mean, not to get ahead of myself. <laughs> I think that's really important. I mean, that's obviously been a slogan of, you know, AA for a long time is, is just take one day at a time, but it's, it's, it's good. It's, it's good wisdom. I mean, it really is. We can get so far ahead of ourselves when sometimes we really just have to be in the moment and Mm -hmm. say, this is, this is what we're doing today. And um, I couldn't, I couldn't be more proud of you for where you're at. Um, And where you're headed and you know someday there's a beach with both of our names on it so that's that, <laughs> that's that's where that's where we're ultimately both headed is somewhere much more relaxing and sunny right yes absolutely <laughs> absolutely i'm just waiting for the call <laughs> just waiting for the call that there's a, a beachfront tiny compound and and we'll, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll be there um right. well I'm I'm super appreciative that you took the time to talk about this today. Um, I will, you know, put in the show notes probably after we get off the air, we'll talk a little bit about and you can send me some links to some different groups. I think I um, that that specifically help people not only get diagnosed, but live with 
bipolar diagnosis with uh, generalized anxiety disorder. And we'll just kind of put some good links in there for people to be able to find some resources. Um, there's a lot of resources out there to find help, to find mm-hmm. support, to find um, diagnosis, um, and to find um, hope, you know, I think hope. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, it's really kind of a, a, a timely thing because you talked about insurance being so integral so much, but um, people need to make sure they vote so that we continue to have good insurance. So, Yes, um, very important in in your uh, quest or your journey to become a better you because mm-hmm. you can't this the treatment that they have is so expensive so right it, it's hard for those who can't pay out of pocket. I, yep, absolutely, absolutely, I agree. So thanks, thank you so much. I appreciate this um, so much. Yes, I I actually um, will grow from this experience by just having the opportunity to talk with you about everything. So, good luck to you. Well, thanks. You'll be you'll be there for the journey, so you'll know where it goes. So, yes. Well, thank you very much. Grievers, it is my hope that from today. You will take that which serves you and simply leave the rest. If you connect with what you have heard, please subscribe to get notified of my new episodes every week, and please feel free to share it with others in the suicide loss community. If you are so led, I would also be honored if you would leave a review so that others might find us more easily. You can find me and all ways to connect with me at my Instagram, The Leftover Pieces. I want you to know that I know how very, very hard life is now. It's true that we will never be the same, but we are going to be okay. We will figure this out somehow, together, and we will keep our loved ones with us because there is no getting over or past grief, only learning to live more gracefully alongside it. Only through talk can we keep their memories alive, learn to live again, and bring some awareness so that less will suffer. Join me again next week, and we will keep the talk going. We will sign off today, as always, with the wise words of my Alex's favorite, Peter Pan. Never say goodbye, because goodbye means going away, and going away means forgetting. Grievers, no one here is forgetting. Talk soon.